0: Hello and welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast and in this episode we'll be uh, beginning our look at Mark Twain's uh, Following the Equator. So this was uh, published in 1897 and it, uh, it came at a time where Mark Twain was dealing with financial problems he had a lot of investments that didn't go his way um his daughter died we talked a little bit about that with the joan of arc uh examination and so he was kind of in a dark place and it's also at a point when he's beginning his like anti-imperialist writings Uh, i don't have the two volumes of his short writings and stories but uh if and when we get to those i'm not sure at this point if i'm going to do those two volumes Uh, at least not at this moment it might be uh i might just finish up with the novels and move on to another topic um some of these mark twain books have been kind of kicking me in the ass uh to be honest this one won't though this 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 one goes down a lot smoother for for my kind of perspective and and my interests um but, you know, he, it's in the end of his career, he's really uh, vitriolically anti-imperialist. Um, and of course, he's Mark Twain, so he comes at it kind of sarcastically. But but even, um, you know, and with, with satire, but this is brutal. I mean, this account uh, on the realities of empire is quite um, direct. And, and I think this this book has to be upheld as one of the great anti-imperialist books of of the 19th century in that it's uh that it almost covers every aspect of the book in some way. I'm even thinking that the the use of the Putty and Han Wilson maxims. He he reintroduces this idea of of the maxims of Putnam and Han Wilson. Each chapter begins with one, and and sometimes they're like thematically connected. Usually they are somewhat thematically connected to the chapter, but I just think in general, it's it's this Western conceit, this Western moral uh, argument. It, it's like talking, it, it's a way of satirizing, I guess. Maybe not talking back directly, the whole book does that, but satirizing the the arrogance of the West to think it can like dictate morality to the world um, uh, at a time when it's 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 like devastating the world in real ways. Right, Pax Britannica was just exported horror um, th- throughout the world. And of course, Britain was the only one doing it, but they were the leading hegemon at the time. And other nations, were were in this quest to kind of tear the entire world into this global system of capitalism, are just leaving devastation behind them. Um, he also at times gets into the history of the different countries he's looking at, and I think that's uh, that's another uh, aspect of it. Um, you know, I think he does this really well with the Australia stuff. Um, But overall really really great book and and this probably is going to end up being my favorite of all the travel logs It'd be this or roughing it. I I think I like them both for different reasons But this one um, just is the most relevant to our own day I mean, it's we're still living with the consequences of these stories that he's he's telling Um, Now, where does he go across in in the book? Um, Well, he starts out uh, really his first trip, he starts on a, he starts on, on a boat essentially, but a ship, but then he goes to, um, uh, Hawaii, then to like Fiji. So he gets some Pacific Island stuff. Then he's going to go to Australia, New Zealand, then to India, and then to South Africa. And there's other stop, um, stops on the way. So, uh, this episode will just kind of set up this book and its approach and I'll, I'll talk a little bit about the Pacific Island stuff because um, that, that's what comes up first. Um, uh, yeah, let's let's uh, try to jump into this. All right, so he starts out with a chapter really on addiction. It's on it's on the the they're on the ship and he's talking these various topics these are just in the ship and the sailors and it's kind of like Innocence Abroad where you have different uh groups of people um like the tourists and the the sailors and there's kind of a class dynamic going on there and there's a little bit more of exploration of it in this book I would say than in the than in Innocence Abroad but uh but he actually starts to like he reflects on on this um and I don't know if I want to, to read this like metaphorically. I mean, I, I kind of want to. I, I kind of want to see him reflecting on like this perverse relationship between Europe and the rest of the world, empire building as a, as a sort of addiction. Um, and and it's focused on desire, right? He, he focuses on this question of desire. I don't know if this is the, this is probably not the best way to look at addiction. I, I think Jack London's John Barleycorn is is a much better look at that, written a little bit later. But he writes here, I have said that the system does not strike at the root of the trouble, and I venture to repeat it: the root is not the drinking, but the desire to drink. There are very different things. The one merely requires will and a great deal of it, both as to bulk and staying capacity. And the other merely requires watchfulness and for no long time. The desire, of course, precedes the act, but one should, but should have one's first attention. It can do but little good to refuse the act over and over again, always leaving the desire unmolested, unconquered. The desire will continue to desert itself and will almost sure to win in the long run. When the desire intrudes, it should be at once banished out of mind, end quote. So if you take this as, as a bit of a metaphor for, for the empire that he's about to tour, um, he's, he's essentially making a moral argument. He's not making a materialist argument, right? He, and, he, and he's not. He's not a materialist Thinker, so he's not going to come out this like like a Marxist would, like a Lenin or, or someone in the 20th century looking at empire as rooted in the material conditions of Europe and the world at the time. He's focusing on desire. This this makes him very much an American. Americans love to make the moral arguments about like consumerism or drinking or prostitution or slavery or whatever. The moral arguments tend to take dominance over the, the, you know, the, the hard core analysis of the material conditions that need to be unlo- d- dislodged. And I think that was part of like, why, like the end of slavery, um, you know, the, the struggle against it started out as moral arguments, right? Um, both by former slaves, slaves themselves, abolitionists. And of course the war created material realities of, of the disruption of slavery, but without actually seeing the problem as the economic conditions of the south that's what allowed like new forms of exploitation to quickly take over right otherwise land reform would have been uh, on the agenda right away which which it was to a degree but but not 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 completely so um Yeah, he he does make the moral arguments throughout here, but he does it really well. I think it's fair to say that he is uh, making a very, very strong argument against imperialism by looking at the disruptions that are caused by it. Um, For instance, uh, when he starts to talk about the Sandwich Islands, Hawaii, chapter three, a wonderful chapter where he talks about the history, the evolution of the of the Hawaiian monarchy. And it's transformations with civilization coming in, the civilizing mission. Um, and, and, and he starts out with a description of an empire and its power base and its taboo and, and the traditional look. And he's drawing on this partially from his previous travels in Hawaii, which we read about in Roughing It. Um, but then we get this like this this persistent blow-by-blow account of how how empire... U.S. Empire destroyed every aspect of that, creating a republic, which was really just a, a vassal state of of the United States. Um, you know, disrupted almost every aspect of their culture with missionaries coming in, uh, with uh, state power coming in, and it all gets presented in the language of reform. But in reality, it's just it's just the, the conquest of that, that civilization. Um, and then he kind of in the chapter before he gets to the end he has to say like oh and by the way all this is happening with the the genocide of the people um, he doesn't use the word genocide obviously it didn't exist at his time but here's what he writes in Captain Cook's time the native population of the island was estimated at 400,000 in 1836 at something short of 200,000 in 1866 at 50,000 it is present day per census 25,000 all intelligent intelligent people praise Kama mahala one and uh liha leo for conferring upon their people the great boon of civilization i would do it myself but my intelligence is repairing now from overwork um he can never stop being satirical about it that's just his that's his his approach that's what he's doing but the the reality is brutal and then he follows up with like the death of language right something we're facing with the world today with nation states eradicating languages um not just a lingua franca of English, but nation states forcing people as he, at young ages to learn state languages. Um, he gets into the disease and all that. So he he sets up in this really wonderful chapter. He sets up, you know, the political change from a monarchy to an empire, and then shows you the bones. It's like then you go into the cave underneath the, the the castle and see the piles of dead and and the destruction that that made that transformation possible. It wasn't. Oh, just a gradual reform to something else. It was, um, like wiping the slate clean through through violence and disease, and and economic disruption and forced migrations and all these other things. And then what came out of that was was yeah, U.S. client state eventually a part of the United States itself. Um, Not long after this book was written, right? This like two years after this book was written, you have the Spanish-American War, and I think it's 1901 or so, 1900, when you have the annexation of Hawaii. Um, I mean, really compelling, compelling stuff like that. Chapter three is really uh, uh, something that's going to stay with you, I think, if you read it. So, uh, anyways, this book is the last. A uh, major book he publishes in his lifetime, actually. It's the one thing to keep in mind. Um, it's not only the last of his great travel narrative, it's the last uh, pretty much book he published. He would continue to write later, but it would be short nonfiction uh, for a large part. I think there was an the unpublished novel, right? Uh, the number 44 may have been written later, but published, it was, it was one of the last. And it just shows that growing pessimism about civilization. We, we see in, in so much of his, his later writings. It's not there in A Tramp Abroad yet. There, there, maybe there's hints of it here and there, a little sarcasm about it, but he's not throwing up his hands, about like the whole mess, uh, the whole mess that is Western civilization. It's certainly the most critical of the travel narratives. We've looked at um, the, while previous narratives tended to make fun of tourists or the tramp abroad following the equator is an important attack on the world system driven by greed and exploitation and and desire ultimately as the desires at the heart of it um and I, and i do think that makes it one of the most important anti-imperialist novels even though it's still very american and it's in it's kind of moralistic approach um yeah it's 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 i mean it was it was on that lecture tour that he was on right And it could have been something else that he did, but he happened to take a lecture tour through the heart of late 19th century empire empire building. You you know, he goes to places that were more established empires like India, (coughs) excuse me, or South Africa, but he's also going to the Pacific, which has been more recently thrust into the world system. Um, And it actually hits most of the major points of contemporary scholarship on empire. I think it does a great job of just um not pulling its punches on i mean it's it's familiar there's nothing here that i think like s- recent scholarship on environment or working class disruptions or, or or the violence of empire wouldn't say yeah i more or less agree i mean it's like mike davis's late victorian holocaust would say the author of that book mike davis he would say yeah true it's true Um, Now, it's not a bleak, ponderous test. It's still lively. It's got the lively musings that Twain's uh, travelogues are used to. He's got a brand that he can't uh, free himself from totally, but they're less frequent and they're more marginal to his goal, which is exposing exposing the exploitation of people at the heart of empire. And I think that's what's striking about this is that his eyes are always on the working class class i think more than any other book of his've i've read except maybe some of the fiction his his eyes in the at the level of 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 the common person and definitely much more so than the other travel narratives like in roughing it you have that but it's that rough more democratic capitalism of the frontier american frontier right which obviously is not happening here um you know it's just like the rise of europe accompanied this massive massive death toll like that, that's like it makes the concept of Pax Britannica like laughable in every way. All right. Intra-European wars of the 20th century may have maximized this technological capacity to kill, but the cost in lives of the 19th century was just as great. And, and I do recommend you read Mike Davis's late Victorian holocausts to see how empire devastated traditional famine relief structures. That's his argument, essentially. And there's that these empires. It, you know, maybe not perfect. Hawaii as a monarchy wasn't perfect, but it had its logic, right? It's actually a conservative argument against empires that empire came in and disrupted traditional systems of, of power and particularly famine relief. That's what Mike Davis says, whether it was the granary system in in China or in India, you have the the the, the tax credits for irrigation and things like that. The way those empires, which knew the, knew about the El Nino, La Nina oscillation cycle, you know, adapted to it over many centuries with very complex systems of of water management and, and marketization of food, like in China, all that made sure that droughts wouldn't turn to famines. But when you disrupt that, which empires did, all right, the British taxed, agricultural improvements in irrigation in India, which meant farmers were less likely to do it, which meant they weren't prepared when the famines hit. In China, it's just that th- those just became mortgaged, the granaries and things just became mortgaged for like railroads and, and things like that. And that led to 10s of millions of deaths, right? That death toll that that makes the 20th century, it's comparable with the 20th century, I, I'm not here to, to I'm not, a, I'm not going to be an accountant of death and, and, and horror, but it's It's on the same level, right? He also, uh, so Twain is also aware of the role of unfree labor migrations playing in the empire, both in the expulsion of excess populations of criminals. When he talks about Australia, um, this economically excess population to the colonies, but also the migrations of semi forced labor to work in plantations in the ship. So his eyes is constantly in that those groups of people. Um, he and, and he does, even though I said it's not ponderous, it's, it's not like a, a dry, dusty uh, book of reportage. It's it, it's, a, it's a Mark Twain book, but he does include hard numbers on the wages, uh, the cost of contract labor, the profits of sugar plantations. Um, the. You know, he tries to quantify the extent of exploitation. He sums it up here. Um, this is in Chapter six, I believe. Where he's talking about this labor system, here says it is easy to understand why the Queensland sugar planter should want the Kanaka recruit. He is cheap, right? Now you can hear that in Mark Twain's voice, and 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 read it like sarcastically, but there's just a brutal, materialist truth underneath of it. It's like that the, the need for cheap labor in these plant, as these plant, as these economies were transformed into export-based plantation economies, made. The exploitation of these local populations necessary right uh it's like what's that book the white pacific there's a you know, book of history that, that basically makes the argument that as soon as like slavery ends in the americas it's just like a new form of slavery has to appear it's just contract labor it's just coolie the coolie system in the pacific is just a replacement um for for this in the, in the new zone of imperialist expansion and he actually that book also i forget who wrote it but That book also gets into the, you know, that a lot of the former slaveholders in in the American South just reinvested their capital in the Pacific islands and and just kind of carried on the the process of the different source of labor. These observations he's making um, would not surprise any historian today, I think. Um, Like for instance, the role of missionaries in empire building in the Pacific, right? Like some of the accounts at the time even when they're critical of, of empire, they, they tend to see missionaries as somewhat, at the end of the day, benevolent. At the end of the day, kind of doing what's best or, or well-meaning. And, and Mark Twain will have none of that. He sees them simply as adjuncts of capitalist exploitation in the Pacific, benefiting from the openness forced on the Pacific by their allies, right? They work, he documents here you know, how they work to enforce class discipline bring just enough education to prepare young people for the work on the plantations or to serve the capitalist class in whatever need they they, they need and most dangerously advertise the idea of european civilization suggesting that it has something to offer outside of terror which, which is all it is at the end right missionaries may say well you're going to get this and this and democracy and, and all these this nonsense but actually all it is is just ecological devastation, famine, disease, murder, exploitation, endlessly, right? Until now, right? We we still live in the world system of empires, just reorganized at the at the end of World War II. It gets reorganized in new ways, with a new center, a, a, a new center of capital, um, and who knows? When America collapses, maybe it'll recenter somewhere else, right? And, you know we're. Are we going to get a multipolar world? That's what some people want. I'm not a fan of that. I think that's just going to create two uh, 1914 conditions again. But a, a true generalized development would, without a center would probably be ideal, but I don't know how to get there any more than anyone else I think knows. But it's going to take dismantling empire uh, at its core. Um, now, he also points out here constantly how um, unstable the whole global system is. There's a rather funny anecdote about this disorder. It's about a child who was born just as the ship was crossing the international dateline. The child will never grow up knowing its birthday. And in fact, there's even a debate because they're on a ship whether it was a Sunday or a Tuesday because of the confusion over the dateline. I guess it was a Monday they crossed over and they they, they were all confused about that. this is a problem that's only possible in a world forced together through this, the incredible powers of empire, right? Like, time zones are something are a product of of this imperial system. When you need the, the when the steamship's going to be there at a certain time, or the you got to have the trains running on time, you need time zones to integrate it. But you know that's when you don't have the integrated world, you don't need to do those things. Obviously, there are many other examples of this type of disorder throughout the book, cultural and economic quote, uh, to quote the the example I just gave, the child will never know its own birthday. It will always be choosing first one and then the other. It will never be able to make up its own mind permanently. This will breed vacillation and uncertainty in its opinions about religion, politics, and business and sweethearts and everything. And it will undermine its principles and rot them away and make the poor thing characterless and succeed in life and and success in life impossible, end quote. Or to put it another way, as, as Karl Marx did, all that solid melts in the air, Right when you have this total commodification of of the world, right, everything gets disrupted, right, and and it's reflected here in the mind of one person, uh, one hypothetical child who's born in a, in a, in a zone of ambiguity. But we're all in that. We're all in that mess, right. So throughout this tour of the Pacific, Twain is able to reflect on the history of global capitalism in the Pacific, intertwining it with empire and constantly is quite content to just reveal its most vicious consequences. And this is done just by traveling to the empire and honestly describing social realities without, without well, maybe he has an agenda. Maybe he come into this anti-imperialist. I don't know how much I know after this, he certainly was on board the anti-imperialist in, in part of the anti-imperialist movement, but you know, just him just doing what he does best honestly describing social realities with his own satire, his capacity of satire. He's producing one of the most important political critiques of his era that I think is still very, very relevant for us today. Uh, Well, the point I'm making is that he's always aware of power, right? He, and he sees it in any element of, of European civilization. He comes across in, in the Pacific that's where we are in the first part of the book he even talks about at one point this uh, i'll just read it I, he says uh, a few ships rode at anchor in it uh, one of them a sailing vessel flying the american flag and they said she come from duluth there's a journey duluth is several thousand miles from the sea and yet she is entitled to the proud name of mistress of the commercial marine of the united states of america there's only one free independent unsubsidized american ship sailing in the foreign seas and duluth owns it All by itself, that ship is the American fleet. All by itself, it causes the American name and power to be respected in the far regions of the globe. All by itself, it certifies to the world that the most populous civilized nation on Earth has a just pride in her stupendous stretch of seafront and is determined to assert and maintain her rightful place as one of the great maritime powers of the planet. All by itself, it is making foreign eyes familiar with the flag, which they had not seen before for 40 years outside of the museum for what Duluth has done in building, equipping, and maintaining her sole expense, the American foreign commercial fleet, and in thus rescuing the American name from shame and lifting it high for the homage of the nations, we owe her a debt of gratitude, which our hearts shall confess with quickened beats whenever her name is named is, is whenever her name is named henceforth. End quote. Again he, he can't stop the sarcasm there, but it's there. It's like this symbol is backed by the full power of of the of the US Empire. right? Which actually kinda of downplays a little bit there the extent of it, but it, it was an equal of European power by this this point of history. Um so the Pacific stuff's great on on Hawaii and, and Fiji and he does this really well here. He's also pretty great on on Australia, um, and the the brutality of the convict labor system. So it's not just uh, non-europeans being exploited in this case it's europeans being exploited brutally and he, he goes into a lot of detail about the the discipline and violence that backed up that and, and, and the spread of alcoholism to australia uh through this this brutal system of, of essentially forced labor forced uh frontier labor so all in all really wonderful book and it's uh really really highly recommended um um it, it's it's up there with with roughing it as as, as one of my favorite ac- accounts i think roughing it does have the the humor a little bit more it's not it's not full of of the cynicism rightful citizen this is well-earned cynicism he's being cynical about something that deserves to be lambasted and made fun of and and presented to the american people as honestly as his uh his, his satirical pen can, can, can do, can make. So that's going to be it for now. Uh, thanks for listening. I'll see you next time when we, we, we look at a little bit more on Australia and, and, and where he goes from there, I think to India. So, um, thanks. I'll see you next time.